Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Many of us have taken the opportunity of COVID-19 lockdowns to tackle big projects, like cleaning out an attic or filing away old photos, or maybe even learning a new skill or hobby through YouTube. But then along comes Yale physician and sociologist Nicholas Christakis to put all of us to shame. In October, just seven months after COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, he published his acclaimed new book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live, a highly authoritative and readable 350-page treatise on the lessons of past pandemics, the origins of this one, and the after-effects that we'll likely have to live through for decades to come. Nicholas Christakis has written a number of other influential books in the past, including Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, which I talked to him about on this podcast in 2019, and Connected, The Amazing Power of Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives. Professor Christakis spoke to me last week from a media studio at Yale University. Here are excerpts from that conversation. One of the great things about your book is the sense of historical perspective you deliver. You talk about the so-called Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. One horrifying thing about that epidemic is that it targeted young children, pregnant mothers, people who generally are of an age who are spared, not always, but mostly are spared by COVID-19. This is speculative, but how much more horrible would the current pandemic not to mention the social and political aspects of the fight about the current pandemic, if instead of mostly targeting older people, it also targeted babies, toddlers, young expecting mothers. Usually for most respiratory pandemics, they have what is known as a U-shaped function, just as you described. They kill the very young and the very old, and they typically spare working age adults. So if you're under five, you're at risk of dying. And if you're over you know, 60, you're at risk of dying. Otherwise, it's not so bad. That's the U-shaped curve. The 1918 pandemic, as you've summarized, famously had a so-called W-shaped curve, where for weird reasons, you killed the very young and the very old, and then also a group of middle-aged, you know, young working-aged people. And the coronavirus pandemic has a so-called backward L-shaped. In other words, it spares the young, and mortality doesn't really begin to rise steeply around age 65 or 70 or so. So you're right, this coronavirus, we're just lucky, we're just blessed that it happens to spare the young. I think if it had not, if it had killed the young as most other respiratory pandemics do, I think we would be taking it a lot more seriously. But I'd like to use your question as a jumping off point to just point out, invite the listeners to think about the following idea. This pathogen has an infection fatality rate of about 0.5 to 0.8%. That means that of the people who get infected with the disease, between half a percent and 0.8 of a percent will die. It varies by age, as we've just said. And about half the people are asymptomatic, which means that if you get symptoms of the disease, you've got to double those numbers. So people who are symptomatic from coronavirus have a between a 1 and a 1.6% percent chance of dying. Let's say 1% of people who get it die. That's actually quite a serious disease. It's not trivial to face a 1% risk of death. 
But there's no God-given reason that this disease isn't vastly worse. It could have been 10% of people dying. The 2003 SARS-1 pandemic killed 10% of the people who got it. Or it could have been like bubonic plague, you know, killing 50% or 70% of the people who got the disease. On the one hand, we're unlucky that the disease is as serious as it is. On the other hand, we're so lucky that it's not much, much worse. In your book, you describe in vivid terms the origins of the 2003 SARS epidemic. I believe it was a hotel in Hong Kong, and there was, I think, a well-known professional who got it. And you tell in detail about what happened. And yet, despite the fact that, as I understand it, in strictly medical terms, that was a more deadly virus, it petered out very quickly. you explain why that happened? Ironically, most of the time, germs, quote, don't want to kill us. Because if a germ kills us very fast or very reliably, then we die before we can spread the pathogen. This is one of the reasons that Ebola outbreaks tend to burn out. What the germ, from the germ's point of view, what it would rather do is make me sick but not kill me. So I'm out and about sneezing on other people, infecting them, and that's the more mild variant of the germ that spreads and spreads. If it had, on the other hand, felled me fast and I had died or taken to my bed because I was so seriously ill and had more limited opportunity to spread it to others, such a variant of a pathogen would not spread as much. In general terms, pathogens that are milder spread faster and farther. Pathogens evolve to be milder because the variants of the pathogens, the mutations that result in milder disease tend to come to predominate. And then if you're exposed to the milder version, you survive and then are immune to the deadlier version. So the thinking goes in general. There are, of course, exceptions. Ironically, in the SARS-1 pathogen from 2003, 10% of the people who got it died compared to 1% of SARS-CoV-2. And so that increased lethality, paradoxically, actually may have limited the spread of the pathogen a little bit. But there are a couple of other important ideas here. First of all, that SARS-1 pathogen from 2003 was not capable very much of asymptomatic spread. So in other words, People only became contagious once they got symptoms. And this made it vastly easier to control the disease because once people got symptoms, they got reasonably sick fairly quickly. They wound up in the hospital. They were isolated in the hospital and taken care of professionally. And so it was much easier to stop the pandemic potentiality of that pathogen compared to SARS-CoV-2, where people estimate perhaps as many as three quarters of the infections that exist are acquired from other humans who are asymptomatic. So that's another detail that was different between the two pathogens that has made uh, SARS-CoV-2 so much harder to control. It's less lethal and it's more capable of asymptomatic spread. But there's another important idea that's very subtle and mathematical that I'd like to discuss if, if I might. This further idea is the following. I'm gonna invite you to think about two different worlds, okay? In one world, there are a thousand people, 10 of them get seriously sick from a disease and one of those people dies. That's world A. In world B, there are 1,000 people, 100 of them get sick, but 90 of them are only mildly sick, 10 of them again get seriously sick, and one of them dies. If you naively computed the case fatality rate, the lethality of the pathogen in those two worlds, in world A, you would compute, oh, 10 people got infected, they got seriously ill, one of them died, 10% of the people died, like SARS-1. In the second world, in which 100 people got infected, 10 got seriously ill, 90 got mildly ill, and one of them died, you would compute naively that one out of 100, or 1% of them died. That would be SARS-CoV-2. 
But actually, you would be wrong to conclude that that second world was a better world. If I asked you, which of those two worlds would you rather be in? I'm going to release a pathogen into this world, and you could be in world A or in world B. You should actually pick world A, even though the pathogen looks like it's more lethal. Because in world B, you face the same risk, 10 out of 1,000, of getting seriously ill, and the same risk of dying, one out of a thousand of dying, but also have the risk of 90 out of a thousand of getting a mild version of the illness. Another subtlety here regarding SARS-CoV-2 versus SARS-1 is that we may be deluded into thinking that SARS-CoV-2 is a milder condition, even though actually it is not. What it has is that it causes a greater variety of illness, from death to serious illness, to a whole bunch of mild illness like the common cold, to nothing, to no symptoms at all. And this protean manifestation, this capacity for protean manifestation that the virus has is another fiendish thing about this virus that makes it so difficult to control because people hear, oh, there are all these cases of people who get the disease and nothing happens to them. So people don't take it seriously. Ironically, even if the same number of people died, if it was a more reliable killer, we would be taking this virus more seriously. From a gene's eye view, a virus doesn't quote unquote want to kill you. What it wants to do is get a free ride to another host. I forget if it was in your book that I saw this, but I think there's a kind of horrible virus that rabbits get, whereby it does kill them extremely quickly. And the reason that's a good strategy for that virus is that it is then birds of prey or other predators who then pick up the virus and then communicate it to others so that in this horrible way, it actually is to the virus's benefit. How complicated does this modeling get in terms of the fatality of a virus? I don't talk about the rabbit example, but I talk about the bubonic plague example specifically. And the reason the bubonic plague is a little bit like your rabbit example and is quite different is that there's a third party. It's not just the uh, Yersinia pestis, the bacterium that causes bubonic plague and humans that are involved. Also a couple of other actors, they're the fleas and the rats. And because of the existence of these other actors, the pathogen in that case, the bacterium, has evolved to be fatal very fast. How does that happen? The bubonic plague is actually thought to be primarily a condition that affects rodents and humans are accidentally infected. And amongst the rodents, it's spread by fleas. So the flea has a blood meal from the rat, the rat may die, the flea leaps to another rat, bites it, transmits the uh, Yersinia pestis, the bacteria that causes bubonic plague, then that rat dies and so on. So the flea is carrying the bacterium from animal to animal. And we then sometimes accidentally come in between the rats, the flea jumps onto us, and then we are infected. And the same thing happens to us. The flea on my body has a blood meal, I die, and the flea has evolved to detect when its host is dead. The flea can detect our body temperature. And so as my body temperature cools when I die, the flea says, oh my God, my host is dying. I better find another warm body. And it leaps to the nearest warm body, which is you know my loved ones who are caring for me, and then infects them and kills them. But here's the thing. The flea takes from us an amount of blood that is large for the flea, but is tiny for us. The pathogen has to be in sufficiently great number in that little packet of blood, such that if the flea drinks a little blood, plenty of pathogen gets into that little packet of blood. If we only have a low level of pathogen in our body, the flea might take a sample of blood from us and there's no germ in it. So then the flea goes to the next host, it transmits some of my blood to that next person, but there's no pathogen in that sample of blood. And so transmission ends. And so therefore, ironically, 
with bubonic plague, you have to get enormous levels of bacteremia. The bacterium wants to multiply very fast and fill our bloodstream with very high levels of bacteria such that the flea drinking a small amount of our blood gets enough of it to be transmitted. And it's exactly as you describe. It has evolved to be very deadly, very fast, precisely for this reason. None of that biology is relevant to a coronavirus because there isn't a third party. And now, a brief shout-out for another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which you can find at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You've heard me talk about Jordan's podcast before, and you know that Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018. But if you haven't given it a listen, let me just tick off some of the guests this guy has managed to get. Bob Saget, Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman, Mark Cuban, and the late Kobe Bryant. And if you tune in regularly, you'll know that this isn't just a parade of famous people. Jordan also finds folks you've never heard of, who just happen to have fascinating stories. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. So there's no third party when it comes to the actual mechanics of an individual infection, but there was essentially a third party when it came to the original development of the virus. First, they thought it might be pangolins. I think now they believe it's bats. Yeah, it's zoonotic. No, but there's no third party in the life cycle of the pathogen. There is a third party in the sense that you're right. I mean, the virus came from bats. So what you have to understand about pathogens, the things that most people think about as ordinarily infecting us is like measles, for example, or tuberculosis or chickenpox. Like most of the conventional things that afflict us actually originally also came from animals. They just came from the wild ancestors of animals that we domesticated thousands of years ago. Those domesticated animals and the pathogens and we have now co-evolved. So measles probably leapt to humans about 2,400 years ago from cattle. It was probably related to a disease called rinderpest in cattle. That had to happen after we had domesticated the cattle and after we had invented cities of large scale, such that if the pathogen leapt from the animal to us, then there were enough of us that the germ could then circulate among us. Most of the diseases that afflicted us originally came from animals, like HIV, for example, came from monkeys in Africa. Same with Ebola, same with zoonon. These are called zoonoses, diseases that circulated in wild animals and that leaped to us. And coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is a zoonosis. It was originally a coronavirus that afflicted bats, and then through a sequence of events which we don't fully yet understand, lands in humans. And now it will be among us forever. This pathogen is never leaving our species. It's going to keep circulating among us even after we're vaccinated, just like measles keeps circulating among us. And unlike smallpox, which is eradicable because there are no animal hosts or animal reservoirs, SARS-CoV-2 can survive in our cats and dogs and minks. So the coronavirus has animal reservoirs and so will circulate, you know, even if we vaccinate ourselves and stop it, it can eventually come back to us. So we'll never get rid of this virus, but it'll probably become progressively more benign and probably eventually, as I discuss in Apollo Zero, in the situation with the 1890 so-called Russian flu, the last serious coronavirus pandemic we had, and not the flu as many people think, I think it's possible that that virus actually circulates among us now as something known as OC43, which is a common cold coronavirus. So I think 100 years from now, SARS-CoV-2 will have mutated to be much more benign. It'll be something that you will encounter as a child and get some significant immunity from. When you get it as a child, it won't be serious. And then as an adult, you'll fight it off and 
that'll be the end in some sense of the story. An analysis that was published, I think, in the journal Nature 10 years ago or so looked at newly emergent diseases over the last 40 years and found something like, I'm going to make up the number 400 new diseases, hantavirus, Zika, coronavirus, Ebola, and they all come from animals. And we're seeing more of them for a number of reasons, actually partly related to climate change, where there's more migration of human populations coming into contact with wild animals, and the terrain of wild animals is increasingly being deforested or destroyed. Those animals are fleeing their terrain So more human-animal contact is resulting in more zoonotic infections and, alas, occasionally serious pandemics. I want to talk a little bit about China, which, of course, is geographically the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. I thought your treatment of the Chinese response to COVID-19 was quite fair. On one hand, you praise China for its public health response. On the other hand, you identify certain decisions that were made very early in the spread of the disease that had deadly consequences. Historians, what sort of grade do you think they'll give China for the way ultimately they handled the pandemic? Well, the problem is that you can admire their ability to stop the virus without necessarily admiring their means. China is, of course, an authoritarian government, and the Chinese have a collectivist culture, very different, of course, than North American society. But every society brings different strengths to the battle against the virus. I mean, the Chinese on January the 24th, they promulgated rules that required 930 million people to stay at home. They locked down a billion people. I was observing that in real time, and that's when I knew that this would be a serious global pandemic, and I couldn't understand why our leaders weren't taking it seriously. There was absolutely no reason. Like, anyone paying attention at that point should have said, well, hold on a minute. The Chinese just put a billion people under a form of home confinement. Why on earth would they do that? the virus must be really bad. The Chinese basically detonated a social nuclear weapon. That's how powerful they thought their adversary was in the virus. And there's no reason to imagine the virus would stay stop at the Chinese borders. So I was very concerned by the end of January by this and, and therefore was appalled when the United States did nothing, as far as I could tell, for months. We didn't prepare PPE. We didn't manufacture ventilators. We didn't get our testing ready and optimized. We didn't prepare the American people for the sacrifices that would be required. There was no good public health messaging out of the White House. We basically did very little. And so we had our own strengths. We are a rich democracy. We have open communication. We have institutions that are functional. We have the best scientists in the world. We have the CDC. We could have brought those weapons to bear in our battle, but we did not. We basically surrendered to the virus, as far as I can tell. So my admiration for what the Chinese accomplished was only from a public health point of view. I I don't necessarily admire the tools that they use, the capacity for authoritarian ordering. Also, they used a lot of intrusive surveillance, which I also don't like. But they accomplished their goal, right? I mean, there's no way in which you can look at the Chinese public health response and think it was inferior to ours. We have already lost 250,000 Americans that we know of. As I speak to you today, I think 2,500 Americans per day are dying of this virus. The excess mortality, if you include the people who died from the virus that we don't know about, probably we have 300,000 dead already. Surely more than half a million Americans will die of this condition, maybe as many as a million. So in the end, when this pandemic is over in a couple of years, we will have lost between half a million and a million Americans. That's embarrassing. I mean, we should be ashamed. We should be deeply ashamed of this this abysmal performance. 
because we could have done much better, especially since we happen to live in a moment when vaccines are possible. The fact that we could invent vaccines meant all the more reason we should have behaved better, responded better, until such time as a vaccine was available, we could have avoided a tremendous loss of life. It's true that other wealthy democracies also dropped the ball, Italy, the United Kingdom. On the other hand, Germany and Greece even, little Greece, did really well. New Zealand, of course, did really well. Now, New Zealand is an island. They had an easier challenge. And South Korea and Taiwan. Taiwan is an island. South Korea is functionally an island. The border with North Korea is sealed. So they had certain advantages. But like I said, even countries that didn't have those advantages also did well. So I think we did very poorly. I don't think we can escape that. Your book came out shortly before some of the very hopeful announcements were made by Moderna and Pfizer, and after that, AstraZeneca in regard to vaccines. And it now looks like there will be vaccines made available, at least to some people, in late December. I think you were quite prescient about the schedule, but you had to write the book without knowing these details. At the same time, you were bemoaning the United States policy and political response. It seems, on the other side of the coin, American companies have been leaders in these shockingly hopeful, amazing scientific results. To a certain extent, it shows the two sides of the United States, this pioneering scientific brilliance, which is going to save millions of lives, but and yet this dysfunctionality in terms of policy. We had many strengths to bring to bear. We had Tony Fauci. Fauci was writing about respiratory pandemics when I was in elementary school. Bill Gates released a TED Talk 10 or 15 years ago that's been seen by tens of millions of people warning about exactly this thing. The CDC every three years releases a document on United States preparedness for a global pandemic. I mean, we have tremendous expertise, tremendous wealth, tremendous know-how, open communication. Unlike the Chinese, whose initial response when the bad news came out in Wuhan in December was to hush it up, right? And because they're an authoritarian government, they were able to do that. And Dr. Wenliang Li, who tried to sound the alarm and who eventually died of the virus, you know, he was called in by Communist Party hacks and told to shut up, you know. We don't have that, I thought, in our society, except some hospitals did try to silence their doctors as well, which is also itself a long and interesting story. But at least in principle, we don't have a government that can silence us. So we had scientific strengths. We had wealth. We had a functioning institutions like the CDC. We had an open communication, but we did not bring those weapons to bear. And so as a result, we have done abysmally. There's also, unfortunately, something less tangible, which is a lack of trust in public institutions and in science more generally. Two weeks ago, we had on your Yale public health colleague, David Paltiel, to discuss his computer modeling of a vaccine rollout. And we were talking about how it was now good news that a full 50% of Americans say they would take a COVID-19 vaccine, which was proven safe and approved, as opposed to the mere 50%, which it had been a few weeks ago. Do these numbers shock you? I mean, I can tell you, maybe I'm naive, but if there were a vaccine available here in Canada tomorrow, I'd be first in line to get it if they would give it to me. Ultimately, do you think that 58% number is an accurate reflection of the number of Americans who will get the vaccine? I don't know how many will eventually get it. I mean, there'll be many reasons for people not to get it. There'll probably be a small group who are virulent, which is almost our oxymoronic, anti-vaxxers. Those people aren't really thinking clearly about risks and benefits of vaccination. And to be clear, I see it on both sides. I see it on the Whole Foods left, and I see it on the 
conspiratorial right. It's not just a right-wing phenomenon. That's right. I mean, I think that uh, there are a small group of people who, for whatever reason and of whatever political persuasion, will be just in principle opposed to vaccines. But in, from my point of view, there's no scientific merit to their concerns. There'll be other people who will just be lazy or people who are just busy or have other priorities. There'll be people who don't think they're at particularly high risk, you know, like the young, for example, may think, well, why should I bother? Although they should get vaccinated. There'll be people who will adopt a wait and see strategy, which is not totally irrational to say, well, you know, yes, I will get the vaccine, but I don't want to be first in line. Let's let other people go first, for example. So all of that will create a, some kind of a mix where we won't have necessarily enough people get vaccinated such that we can achieve an important milestone known as herd immunity. Some of your listeners will be sufficiently sophisticated that they will know that the herd immunity threshold is typically calculated using the so-called R-naught of the virus, the basic reproduction number, which is an assessment of the intrinsic contagiousness of the virus, which in the case of SARS-CoV-2 is about three. It's between 2.5 and 3.5. Let's say three. That means that each infected individual in a non-immune population that is interacting normally, that is to say at the very beginning of the epidemic, three new people would be infected. And you compute the herd immunity threshold with a formula R-naught minus one, so three minus one divided by R-naught, so that's three minus one is two divided by three is 66.6% would be the naive calculation of the herd immunity threshold. But it turns out for various network science reasons, that go by the term of population heterogeneity, that number is actually lower. So probably the herd immunity threshold for SARS-CoV-2 is about 45%, let's say 50%. Let's say 50% of people need to be vaccinated in a population or acquire immunity naturally before you get herd immunity. So we got to get there. Now, how fast we can get there, I don't know. It's going to take time to manufacture the vaccine, distribute the vaccine, and as you're suggesting, persuade people to take the vaccine. And that level of avidity for the vaccine may vary as well according to what news we hear. So if we hear some cases of adverse reactions, which could emerge, then, you know, that'll sap interest in the vaccine, which will create further problems for us. And now a commercial message from virtual private network service provider NordVPN. NordVPN was born in 2012 when four childhood friends came together to build technology that could liberate the Internet. Each of these founders had spent a lot of their time in different parts of the world where internet censorship, content control, and intrusive surveillance had become a growing problem. Eight years later, NordVPN serves more than 14 million people worldwide. A virtual private network gives you online privacy and anonymity by creating a private network from a public internet connection. It's not the sort of technology that I ever thought would be relevant to my own life, but governments in even free countries, like Canada, where I live, are starting to muse openly about censoring the internet, and many of us are looking for technological solutions to make sure that doesn't affect us. NordVPN provides access to more than 5,000 super-fast servers in more than 50 countries, a 30-day money-back guarantee, and even if you're not worried about online access and security at home, you can also install it on your mobile devices across a range of operating systems, so it protects you and your data while traveling in airports, coffee shops, and other locations. You get 24-7 customer support, up to six simultaneous connections, double data encryption for increased anonymity, and no data logging. Plus, you don't have to be a techie to use it. NordVPN has a simple extension for your Chrome browser, which is lightweight and user-friendly from the first click. It secures your browsing in seconds. 
as part of a special deal for Quillette listeners, every purchase of a two-year plan will get you four additional months free. Go to nordvpn.com slash Quillette and use our coupon code Quillette at checkout. And now back to our podcast. I wanted to talk a little bit about how the after effects of COVID-19 will shape the world of our older years and the lives of our children. You have a fair bit about that in your book. In fact, you talk a lot about how the Spanish flu helped shape modern life. One ironic thing that jumps out is that Despite the millions of people ultimately who will die of this disease, it may leave the world a safer place because there's less auto travel, more people staying at home, lower risk activities. And I'm guessing people on lockdown have spread other diseases at a lower rate. I know very few people who have the common flu here in Toronto simply because no one's seeing each other. I know this is a hard question to answer, but ultimately, even putting aside public health measures to prevent the next pandemic, uh, Jeffrey Flyer was on our podcast and he was very clear that there will be another one. Do you think we will have a safer society, but maybe also a lonelier one? I don't think we'll have a lonelier society. No. As you may know, my previous book was called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. And the pandemic is almost an irony for me because in that book, I argue about the fundamental innate structure of human social interactions that has been shaped by natural selection. I think infections and pandemics come and go, but human social order is enduring. And in fact, in, in some way, you could even say that what we're experiencing right now is that the great force of a deadly germ is meeting the enduring reality of our evolved social nature. In fact, the germ in some ways exploits our social nature. You know, the fact that we form networks or have friends or touch each other, all of those things which evolution has shaped, those behaviors germ takes advantage of to spread among us. So we will return to those fundamental ways of interacting. Now, there may be some changes. For example, handshaking may be less appealing for a long time. You know, Westerners may adopt more Eastern modes of greeting. So on the latter part of your question, I don't think there's going to be more loneliness. On the short term, yes, for the next four years or so, I you know, until 2024, I think we're going to have some lingering social effects, but eventually we'll return. On the safer society, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I think this pandemic is going to have a lot of effects and it's going to change us in many ways. You know, I I think there are fewer traffic fatalities this year overall, although that also was complex. There were fewer cars on the road, but people were speeding more as a result. And so when accidents did occur, they tended to be more fatal. Nevertheless, overall, I think motor vehicle accident deaths declined. But, you know, we're going to return to the roads. In terms of pandemic preparedness, yes, we will be more prepared, but, you know, our vigilance may eventually be sapped. If the next pandemic comes in five years, you better believe we'll be well prepared. But if the next pandemic comes in 20 or 50 years, by then we may have lost focus. Respiratory pandemics do recur every 10 to 20 years, but serious ones like the ones we're facing right now are once in a century events. They don't need to be once in a century events. We could get another one in five years, but it's unlikely. So I don't know what my judgment would be on whether we'll have a safer society. We'll have some persistent changes, which, of course, I discuss in Apollo Zero, but I wouldn't be prepared to say we'll be safer. Nicholas Christakis is the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Thank you so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you so very much for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.